This morning's sermon text comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 32 to 61, which can be found in the Pew Bible on pages 834 and or 2835. Matthew, chapter 27, beginning at verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tomb, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray together.
So, Father, now I pray for uh, the Spirit's ministry to open this word to bring us near to the death of your Son, to publicly portray before our eyes Jesus Christ as crucified this morning. This is beyond human ability, but it is not beyond yours, and it is what you, I believe, intend to do this morning. So with great expectation and with utter inability on my own part to bring that about, I cast myself, and I know other Brothers and sisters, join me in casting ourselves together upon you for that ministry of the Spirit now. And Father, we pray that even on this day, that this word of Christ, this word of the cross, of his cross, would be used by you in the power of the Holy Spirit to literally raise the dead, to bring them out from the tombs as the voice of the Son of God goes forth and speaks life into the very heart of death and sin and guilt and estrangement from you and shows that he is the one, again, that he is the one who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through his gospel. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, I wonder if you believe that it's possible to behold the cross and be blinded to it at the same time. Uh, Matthew certainly believes that, and Matthew believes that because God believes that, and that's what we see happening in our passage. What a spectacle. There is no other word for it. What a spectacle Jesus's crucifixion was. Matthew's account is filled with sights and it's loud with sounds. There's a lot of sights and there's a lot of sounds, but it's not the sights that we expect and it's not the sounds that we expect. Did you notice that there is not a single drop of blood described? Did you notice that there is no gore whatsoever in this passage? All the things that we would be so curious about. There is no account of what Jesus looked like as he was hanging on the cross for hours. No description of his facial expression. All the things that we would be so curious about. No no detailed reconstruction of what his misery looked and sounded like. Not even do we get from Matthew any description of the specifics involved in crucifixion. And as for sound, we don't hear anything from Jesus until verses 46 and 50. This is not how we would do it. Matthew's attention is focused elsewhere, which means that the Holy Spirit's attention 
is focused elsewhere, which means that our attention needs to be focused elsewhere in this spectacle. And where this text draws our eyes is to the head-on collision of conflicting interpretations of the meaning of Jesus' death. That's what this text is about. That is the key issue before all of us this morning. That is where God wants us to focus. Matthew makes sure that we see Jesus ringed around, if you will, by four very different groups of gawkers and mockers, right? He makes sure that we see first that he is surrounded by the soldiers, by the crucifixion detail. And then he makes sure that we see that Jesus is surrounded by two robbers, one on his right and one on his left, who are crucified with him. He he, he makes sure that we see the passers-by because Jesus would have been crucified in a very public place. And so people would have been walking by, and that was one of the points of crucifixion. It was a public spectacle. The man was crucified naked. He was publicly shamed and Matthew makes sure that we see the passers-by wag their heads he makes sure that we see the chief priests and the scribes and the elders now these are very different groups and yet despite all the differences between them Matthew makes sure that we hear them speaking with a single unanimous voice They're all mocking him. They're all looking at his death on the cross and interpreting it. These people have no reason to be united on anything, but they stand at the foot of Jesus' cross and they they see his crucifixion and they interpret it as meaning that he has failed. Their mockery isn't just about meanness, friends. It's about meaning. Their mockery is an interpretation of the cross. And by their reckoning, the crucifixion of Jesus means that he has failed. It means that he is a failure. It means that he's an imposter. It means that for him to have claimed to be the Son of God is the ultimate self-mockery. It means to them that for him to have claimed to be a king is the ultimate self-mockery. To them, the cross is definitive proof that he has no crown, never did and never will. To their minds, nothing, nothing could be further from the truth than than the idea that a king would be crucified. A cross and a crown, those are polar opposite ends of a spectrum. They can't be in the same place at the same time. But Matthew has not only a very acute eye for irony, like we were thinking about last week, he has a very astute ear for irony, and he wants us to hear the irony in the logic of their mockery. Because the very thing that to their minds 
couldn't be further from the truth about a king, namely that he's being crucified. That very thing, that very fact, a king being crucified, that nothing could be closer or nearer to the truth of God's heart and God's mind. Because in God's mind, my friends, the cross and the crown are not polar opposite ends of the spectrum. They're the one point on the spectrum. This is Christianity. Don't trust your eyes when you look at the cross. Don't trust your own eyes when you look at the cross. Don't pit a crown and all that it represents, honor, authority, and power. Don't pit that against a cross and all that it represents, shame, failure. Because in God's great design in the gospel, those things are brought together in the death of Jesus Christ so that he might fulfill the promise of his name, which is to save his people from their sins. There is no other way to do that. It takes nothing less than the omnipotent power of the king of the cosmos to save a sinner from their sins. So unless the crown of the universe is worn on the cross, there will be no salvation. So don't trust your eyes. Trust God's. Because God beholds the cross and he is not blinded to what it means. And he is not dissuaded by what men think about the cross. God, at one level, does not care what you think about the cross. It is what he says it is. He's not negotiating. His call to you and to me is to submit to his interpretation of it. To cast off our confidence in our own wisdom and interpretation. To cast off our confidence in our own narration of our lives. And to, in repentance and in humility, submit to his narration of the meaning of our lives. And to look at the cross through his eyes. To understand the cross through his understanding of it. All the other witnesses in this passage are unreliable. But there is another witness in this passage who is reliable, and it's God. So the greatest gift that God gives us in our passage this morning is, is a God's eye view of the cross. It's the one we need. It's the one that summons us all to repentance. It's the one that calls us all to faith. It's the only true view of the cross. And so we're going to look at the cross according to that God's eye view. And we're going to do it under three headings this morning. The cross according to Jesus, the cross according to the Father, and the cross according to the Holy Spirit. So let's think first about the cross according to Jesus. <clears throat> It's such an interesting passage because after hours of enduring, I mean, just hours upon hours, can you imagine Jesus is surrounded by people 
who are casting insults upon him. He's hearing them misinterpret him and misinterpret the meaning of his death and not once does he open his mouth until verse 46. And then again in verse 50. Two loud cries. And those loud cries are Jesus' interpretation of his cross, of the meaning of his death. Let me explain what I mean. Let's look at the first cry first, which is in verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which is in Aramaic, Translation of Psalm 22, verse 1, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As darkness has covered the land, right, for three hours, according to verse 45. And at the climax of that darkness, in the ninth hour, Matthew reports that Jesus cried out with this loud voice, he cries out with a loud voice in the words of Psalm 22.1. And the loud voice is surprising because he's a man who's being crucified. There is strength here. Surprising strength. And these aren't lines, friends, that he has memorized. He is not an actor. These are not the words of an actor. This is, these are the words of an author. These are the words of an author saying and narrating the meaning of what is happening to him. He is in control on the cross. He is interpreting what is going on. He is interpreting what's occurring on the cross, what he is accomplishing by his death. This is not just some scripture memory that he has tucked away. He is narrating with God's own words the meaning of the cross. And these words from Psalm 22, verse 1, they give us two guides for the meaning of his cross. And the first guide is his forsakenness at the end. And the second is his faithfulness to the end. Both of those, in this quote from Psalm 22, verse 1, both of those themes, his forsakenness at the end and his faithfulness to the end, both of those testimonies are what we need to understand how Jesus understands his cross, how to, what it means to look at the cross through Jesus' eyes. Let's deal first with the whole notion of his forsakenness at the end. There's physical darkness. Nature is bowing before the death of Christ. The Creator is under His own judgment. Nature, the fabric of nature, cannot remain unaffected. But that physical darkness is simply a picture, an illustration of the spiritual darkness that Jesus has fully, undeservedly, and voluntarily descended into on behalf of both his father to fulfill his father's will and on behalf of his people to save them from their sins. And he had to do it in order to fulfill both. This, this term forsaken, this is such an important term. It's like, a, it's like a technical term from the Old Testament. And what it refers to are the curses of God 
that are leveled upon those who repudiate God's covenant. It is a term with great weight from the Old Testament and Jesus takes it on his lips in his dying minutes to be forsaken in the sense of Psalm 22.1 is to be abandoned by God as the penalty for abandoning him. It is the ultimate curse of the covenant and my friends, it is the definition of hell. Jesus doesn't cry, my God, my God, why have they forsaken me? Referring to the mockers and the gawkers because he knows that what's happening, what he is doing on the cross is submitting to what his father is doing. Friends, Jesus isn't acting and he's not exaggerating when he describes himself as being forsaken on the cross. Again, not just a line. This is an accurate description. This is an author. This is an author declaring what is happening. But how could this be? And why would this be? How could it be that the only faithful covenant partner God has ever had would end his life being treated by God as the ultimate and most notorious covenant breaker? Why and how could that be? How could it be that the end of the life in which he had cleaved moment by moment with every breath and beat of his heart in love to God, how could that life end in being abandoned by his father? Why would the, the, the climax of his life of perfect covenant faithfulness to his father why would the climax of that life be forsakenness by his father because it was the only way it was the only way and it's still the only way there is no acceptance with God apart from the forsakenness of Jesus Christ. There is no reconciliation with God apart from the alienation and estrangement of Jesus Christ that he voluntarily entered into on behalf of every single one of his people on the cross on Calvary. You don't get to do an end around. You have to embrace that same alienation, that same estrangement, because you know what? Outside of Christ, that's your estrangement. That's your alienation from God. That's your forsakenness. You cannot repent in a way that is repentance unto life unless you acknowledge that what Jesus was enduring on the cross was a preview. The accurate proportional representation of the future of everyone who refuses to yield to God in repentance and faith. That's your future outside of Christ, my friend. And it is a just future. You know, it had to be that way. Do you remember chapter 16, verse 21? I wonder if you turn with me there. It's on page 822. I know, it was about 21 years ago that we actually were in chapter 16. But 
but you remember it. It's really the first explicit prediction by Jesus of his, of his death. It's after Peter's confession of Jesus' identity in Caesarea Philippi, and then verse Matthew summarizes what happens in verse 21. This is so important to see this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Now that must controls all the remaining verbs. That he must, it's not that he just must go to Jerusalem and everything, every other verb that he des- that's described there just happens to happen. No, he, this is the sense of the Greek. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And he must be killed. And on the third day, he must be raised. Well, what's that must? I mean, God obviously is not required to save a sinner. Our sin doesn't back Jesus into a corner by which he's forced then in which he's forced to be a savior. This is not this is the must not of debt but of desire my friends having having chosen according to the pleasure of his will and according to his own free counsel from before the foundation of the world to save sinners. There was only one way to do it. And it was going to require the suffering and the forsakenness and the abandonment of the Son of God. This is not the must of debt. This is the must of desire. This is what God wanted to do. We are not to look at the cross and say, this was not what Jesus wanted. It was what he wanted. Everything that was required of him on the cross was desired by him. Friends, if you don't know that about this sacrifice, it will not sweep you off your feet. You will think that Jesus is just a very patient victim. No, but friends, how much bigger the cross gets, how much greater his love appears to you when you realize that this is the master in control who wields his sovereignty to serve sinners. Then there is no love. Amen. God's justice required a remedy. And God's love required a rescue. And together, they required the son's forsakenness. It had to be this way. To save others. This is the great irony, right, of the charge the charges of the passers-by and the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they say, hey, 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 if you're so, if you you can save others, but you can't save yourself, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. You see, in order, see, they got it exactly wrong, right? In order for him to save sinners, in order for him to save others from their sins, the one thing he could not do is save himself from their sins. Do you realize that, my brothers and sisters in Christ, in order to save you from your sins, Jesus could not save himself from your sins. And it's not simply that he could not save himself from your sins. He would not save himself from your sins. He did not want to save himself from your sins. Who has given you a gift like that, my friends? 
Who has borne a burden for you like that? This needs to sink in, not just to our ears, but to our hearts. What, what this beloved son, the son, the beloved son in whom God was well pleased, think about it, he was willing in order to save his people from their sins, he was willing to become the benighted son in whom the father was infinitely displeased. He was willing and, and, willing and wanting to embark on a journey, right? A, a journey down the way of destruction to the very end of the way of destruction. That is what Calvary is. It is Jesus taking the end of the way of destruction and pulling it in his sovereign power from the future into the present to show us what future awaits us outside of Christ. And he was willing to embark on that journey to save his people from their sins, to experience the devastation of that destination. It's just absolutely staggering. This needs to get in. But it's not just his forsakenness at the end that's so amazing in his quote of Psalm 22.1. It's his faithfulness to the end. See, we need both. We must have his forsakenness at the end. We need a substitute. But that substitute has to be perfect because we're not. We can't bear the curse that we have earned. Someone must bear it for us. So we need his forsakenness and he gives it for us. But we need that perfection in that substitute. We need his faithfulness to the end. There can't be a single compromise. If there was, then his offering would not, to God would not be without blemish and then it would have no power to save. He must not only be forsaken at the end, he must be faithful all the way to the end. Oh, what a Savior. And look at, look, just look at his faithfulness. He takes the words upon his lips, right? Look at how fully, the words of God. He fully abandons himself to his Father. Think about this. At this climactic moment in his suffering when he's utterly abandoned, what does he do? He fully abandons himself to his father even as his father is abandoning him. He does not let go. My God, my God. Yes, there's a sense of distance there, right? It's not my father, my father. But he is not letting go of God. You need that, friends. And so do I. What the Holy Spirit is showing us is here is a faithfulness you cannot replicate but which you need. And here is a forsakenness which you deserve and you cannot bear. And they are in Jesus Christ. And Him alone. He is the sin bearer. He is the law keeper. He alone is the shelter for sinners. You must take refuge in Him. You cannot stand at the foot of the cross and just be a spectator and, and touch it. And then be safe. You must go in. It's not enough to be in the church. You've got to be in Christ. In that Christ. Jesus not only lived by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He died by them. 
Forsaken, he does not forsake. Abandoned, he does not abandon. There is a savior of faithfulness that is sufficient to provide a shelter for all the unfaithful who will take refuge in him, you and me. The the world is full of unfaithful people. And the, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ is so great that there is room for anyone and everyone who will turn from their sins in repentance and trust in Christ by faith. That faithful, there is always room for more within the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. There is always room for more within the forsakenness of Jesus Christ. If you will acknowledge that you are justly under the curse of God because of your sin and that Jesus Christ alone is the one source of eternal salvation and you seek to come to him, Jesus promises you that he will not cast out any who come to him because there's room in his forsakenness for you. That's just his first cry. Love for his people in his forsakenness. Love for his father in his faithfulness. We need that shelter. But the second cry in verse 50 adds even more to the story, to Jesus' interpretation of his cross. Notice that in the moment of his death, Matthew describes Jesus' moment of death very interestingly, and you can, you can rush by it and, and you'll miss something so significant. At the moment of his death, when he's supposed to be utterly weak, he cries out loudly again. This is strength that should not be there at the, at the end of a crucifixion. But, but here we go again with, with a loud voice, and even though the, the, there aren't words that are recorded, what Matthew does is he makes sure that we understand, right, that Jesus doesn't just fade away. No, notice, he's not just the pa- a passive dire. Notice how Matthew describes it. He cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Do you see what the emphasis is? Jesus is active. He's yielding his spirit. At the moment when he is supposed to be the most passive, he is actually the most active. Do you see this? That even in his death, Jesus, sometimes in reform circles we talk about Jesus' passive obedience, and it's very unhelpful. It's very unhelpful because it's confusing. Most people think that passive, the passive, passive, to say that somebody's passively obedient is that they're just taking it. Of course, that's not the original sense of Passive obedience. Passive refers to Jesus' suffering, his obedience in his suffering. But if you have the idea that in Jesus' suffering he's being passive, you, you don't have the mind of the Bible about it. And verse 50 is a very clear example of this. That in Jesus' suffering, at the climax of his suffering, notice he is acting. He is yielding up his spirit. Here is the high priest, right, who through, the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 14, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. That's what's happening in verse 50. The perfect high priest is offering himself. He is giving his life. It's not being taken from him. He is making the ransom for sinners. It's not being extracted from him. He is in charge. He is not a victim on his cross, my friends. And you see here again is another window into the magnitude of the love of Jesus Christ. That at the summit of his suffering, 
he is acting to bring glory to his Father and to secure salvation for his people. He is fulfilling his mission. This is why he has come, not to have his life taken from him, but to lay it down. Not to have a ransom for sinners extracted from him, but to make that ransom payment. To be the one who is not robbed of the ransom, but who, who in his own willingness and sovereignty opens up the storehouse of the riches of his righteousness and pays What a savior. In the gospel, Jesus keeps the promise of his name, my friends, through a beautiful exchange in which he, as the willing, as the beloved son, is willing to yield himself up to be crucified and forsaken so that we who are beloved sinners, might be justified and accepted in him. In the gospel, my friends, because of that beautiful exchange, Jesus' question for us who are in Christ, Jesus' question in verse 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is changed for us in Christ and everyone who's in Christ. That question is changed. It's transformed into the very heart of our confession. My God, my God, this is why you have accepted me. The only reason. It is the only reason. How can we ever, in light of that, ever for a moment entertain thoughts, hard thoughts, about the goodness or the tenderness of Jesus Christ, my friends? Some of you are struggling with the trials in your life, and you think, you believe, you have begun to believe that those trials and those sufferings call into question the goodness of Jesus or the tenderness of Jesus or the compassion of Jesus. Some of you are struggling with the boundaryless demands of Jesus for repentance. And in response, you want to draw limits around what he can ask of you. When he drew no limits around what he was willing to give for you. I want you to look at this text again, my friends. And I want you to stop your grumbling. And I want you to stop feeling sorry for yourself immediately. I want you to stop drawing boundaries and limits for the repentance and obedience that Jesus Christ can rightly demand of you. I want you to do that immediately because he drew no boundaries on the obedience that he was willing to render for you. There's a summons. There's a summons here, friends, to every single one of us, Mike Francis included, to bring all of our hard thoughts about the goodness of God, all of our all of our resentment over the call of obedience and discipleship, all the self-pity that we mire ourselves in, to bring all of those and to plant them by faith at the foot of the cross in the blood-soaked soil there so that they will die 
Plant them there. They cannot live there. And if you let them live, they will kill you. This love should transform you. This love should make you softer and stronger and wiser and more patient all at once. And if it doesn't, you're not paying attention. That's the first point. It's the longest point. So now we look at the cross according to the Father. And the Father gives us his interpretation of the cross, not in words, but in very dramatic and supernatural events that, lead, that both lead directly up to Jesus' death and that flow directly out of Jesus' death. And every, let me just be real honest about this and just acknowledge it. Every single one of these events is unashamedly and unapologetically supernatural. So what? The whole gospel is supernatural. If you're struggling with the possibility that actually in history, tombs were opened up and dead people came out and were seen, if you think that that's impossible because you've never seen it, well, our questions go much deeper, don't they? The whole gospel is supernatural. There's no facet of Jesus' ministry that isn't supernatural. Once you posit that a sovereign God exists, this is nothing. The only way you think this is a stumbling block is if you don't believe in the God of the Bible. Just because you haven't seen something doesn't mean that it's not true. How many times has the universe existed, my friends? It is, by definition, highly improbable in itself. And yet you believe in the universe, I assume. You were not there when it was created. So I don't think you should be troubled by this. Obviously, the Bible is not. And what the what the Father gives us is a series of events that are very dramatic, and they are the illustrations. They're not with words. He's illustrating through these events his interpretation of his son's cross. And he uses these events that we can see in the text to teach us what he sees and what he understands about Jesus' cross, about the meaning and power of his son's death. And what he shows us is absolutely staggering because he shows us in these events, friends, that nature, that history, that death, and that sin all bow together in submission before the death of Jesus Christ. And that is an understatement. The darkness. The Father paints the land in darkness in verse 45 to illustrate the spiritual darkness of condemnation and damnation that is engulfing and swallowing Jesus up as he is perfecting his substitution. 
right? He's, he's perfecting himself as the substitute of his people by being made sin, by being made the sin of his people. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the physical darkness illustrates the spiritual darkness that Jesus is descending into as, as he's made sin and as being sin being the sins of his people, that his identification with his people's needs now is utterly complete. And once that's at its peak and at its consummation, he then becomes the lightning rod, the object to draw down and away from his people the holy judgment of God against that sin. That is the reason for the darkness and why the Father brings it. The earthquake. In verse 51b is the Father's illustration of the shockwave. If we, could, if we could see history through the eyes of the Father, we would see a shockwave emanating through history. If history's like a canvas. And we would see, here's this event that happens in history 2,000 years ago. And there's a shockwave, a shockwave that emanates in every direction in history from Calvary. If we could see it with the Father's eyes, we would see that, 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 that the tremors, the shockwave, if you will, the aftershocks of what, trans, what was transacted on Calvary. You know what? Those aftershocks are being felt in this very room right now. They're shaking lives. You're a Christian if you're a Christian because the shockwave of what God accomplished at Calvary shook your life down to its foundations. And it's still happening in this room. That's what God sees when he looks at the death of his son. The only sacrifice sufficient to save sinners in all of history. There's a weightiness in the cross of Jesus Christ. There's a weightiness. If you, again, if you think of history as this canvas, there's a weight. God stepped in to that moment in history. And if you can think about it, that, that is the heaviest moment in history. The weight of God on the cross under the judgment of God. And what happens? History itself bends toward that moment. It bends. And so... The, 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 re- the resurrection of the dead after Jesus' resurrection, you know what's happening? Is what, what the Father is showing us is that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the great invasion has begun. The invasion of the eternal future coming into the present. It is utterly shocking. The new age entering the present age. History itself is bent under the weight of the death of Christ. And the Father is showing that to us. You see, to be a Christian is not to have a life filled with little thoughts. You cannot have little thoughts about these things and be a Christian. Everything changes. See, that's a, that's a philosophy of history now. This is the Father's philosophy of history. And he knows what he's talking about. You might look at history and you say, oh, look, the rise and fall of different economic uh, systems and different political systems. Those are nothing. The nations are a drop in the bucket to this God. But the death of Jesus Christ is the history-defining event. 
Nothing is weightier than that. And so because that's true of history generally, that needs to be true in our lives individually. Because your career will not outweigh the death of Jesus. Your family structure will not outweigh the death of Jesus. Your marriage will not outweigh the death of Jesus. Your money will not outweigh the death of Jesus. Your piety will not outweigh the death of Jesus. Your Christian service will not outweigh the death of Jesus. Your preaching, your theology, your education, none of it will outweigh the death of Jesus. There is only one answer you can give God when you appear before him that will be weighty enough to be an eternal shelter for you, and it is the death of Jesus. So life should be organized accordingly. The opening of the tombs and the raising of many saints, I've talked about that. How about the tearing of the temple curtain? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, from top to bottom. This was a very tall curtain. The estimates differ, but it's very tall. It's the curtain that separates the the Holy of Holies from the holy place, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was and the presence of God was in the temple from the rest of the temple. And this, this curtain, Matthew tells us, is torn in two from top to bottom. And what we're being shown, and it's, so it's, it's torn from top to bottom. It's torn by God, is the implication. And that shows us that when God the Father looks at the death of Jesus, here's what he sees, my friends. He sees the power of the death of Jesus to justify sinners. He sees the power of the death of his Son to purify sinners. He sees the power of the death of Jesus to sanctify sinners and to qualify sinners to enter into God's presence. He sees paradise regained. Everything that was lost by man's sin in Eden is now regained by his son. That's what the father sees. Which shows us that when the father looks at the cross, he sees a transaction. He sees the accomplishment and consummation of a transaction that that occurred between the father and the son, the son yielding himself up to purchase an eternal redemption for his people on the cross, making payment in his own blood to purchase that redemption. The father sees, when he looks at his, cross, looks at his son's cross, the full satisfaction of his justice. He sees the full vindication of his righteousness. He sees the full demonstration of his love, all accomplished through that transaction. And that transaction is not between us and God, it's between God and God. Now that's a really important point. Because what I'm saying is that when the father looks at the looks at his son's cross and to illustrate what was accomplished there, tears the temple in the curtain from top to bottom, you notice that has nothing to do with your feelings or mine. That has nothing to do with the degree or extent of your understanding of the cross or my understanding of the cross. The only feelings about the cross that matter are God's. The only feeling, the only understanding of the cross that is really germane to this transaction, are, they're, they're, it's God's understanding. 
The power of this transaction is objective. Something actually happened there. Something was accomplished there. Something occurred there. Something was transacted there. And this is the key to the Christian life, my friends. This is the key to Christian growth, to increasingly root yourself in the objective power of what God accomplished at the cross, what God the Son accomplished at the cross, and what God the Father declares He accomplished at the cross, and what God the Holy Spirit promises was accomplished at the cross, increasingly to root your life and anchor your life in what God says about the cross, and decreasingly in how you feel about the cross. Now, of course, I'm not saying that there's no need for a subjective appropriation and response to the cross. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I mean, of course, it, the passage commends it. You see the centurion and the crucifixion detail responding to the cross subjectively, right? But the, but, but the issue is the order and the importance. One is primary and the other is secondary. One is original and the other is derivative. What's original, what is primary, is what God accomplishes on the cross and what God says was accomplished on the cross. That's what's primary. What's secondary is how we feel about that. Friends, our subjective response. This is so important. We, what I am describing for you right now is the key to the Christian life. Our subjective response to the cross does not fill the cross with meaning. Our subjective response to the cross fills us with the cross's meaning. Our subjective response to the cross does not bolster the power of the cross. It doesn't add to the power of the cross. If you're a non-Christian here and you do not respond in repentance and faith to the gospel, you are not taking anything away from the power of the cross. You're simply denying yourself the power of that cross. See, we don't add anything. We don't bolster the power of the cross. We receive the power of the cross by our faith. Which leads us to the third interpretation, which is the cross according to the Holy Spirit. This is the shortest one. See, we don't fill the cross. The cross fills us. Just repeat that, self, that to yourself over and over and over again. We don't fill the cross. The cross fills us. What it means to understand, finally, right, what it means to understand the cross according to God is to embrace and submit not just to the Father's understanding of the cross and not just to the Son's, but also to the Holy Spirit's interpretation of Jesus' death. And the Holy Spirit's testimony about Jesus' cross is, is both the least obvious and the most obvious in our text. It's both the hardest to see and it's the easiest for us to see. What do I, what do I mean? Well, let me explain. We've already seen, right, that this passage in the way that, in the shape of this passage is that it is full of eyewitnesses of all the, of Jesus' cross, of all the things that Matthew could have emphasized. 
This is what he is emphasizing. This is a text full of eyewitnesses. And they're unreliable, most of them. Right? The soldiers and the robbers, the bystanders, and the chief priests and the scribes. There's, th- this passage is just full of eyewitness testimony. And yet, as they behold the cross, what Matthew is showing us is they're blind to it. They're looking at the same cross that God the Father is looking at, that God the Son is looking at, and that, yes, God the Holy Spirit is looking at, and they are utterly blind to its true meaning. This passage is full of eyewitnesses to the cross, just like this room is full of eyewitnesses to the cross. You're an eyewitness to the cross through this text. Because this text isn't just full of eyewitnesses, Friends, this inspired text is eyewitness testimony itself. You've got eyewitnesses in the text, but the text is eyewitness testimony because it's the Holy Spirit's text. It's not Matthew ultimately, right? It's the Holy Spirit who is presenting himself to you and his own eyewitness testimony of Jesus' cross. Friends, this is so critical to see this, that the Bible is not just a book. The Bible is a bridge. The Bible is a bridge that God designs, that God builds, and that God personally crosses to bring us now This is a living and active word. God has crossed the chasm between God and his creatures on the bridge of the Bible. And he's personally coming right now at this moment to bring to us Jesus Christ in all the fullness of his accomplishments. Jesus Christ in all the willingness of his death. Jesus Christ in all of his achievements, in all of his truthfulness, in all of his reality. And God is, has personally crossed that bridge to each one of us, to each one of our lives, to bring us the fullness of Jesus Christ and his readiness to bestow all the fruits of Jesus' labor on any and all who will receive him. The Bible is so much more serious than we understand it to be because, because there's another level that we need to embrace here. It's not just that the text is full of eyewitnesses. It's not just that the text is eyewitness testimony, the Holy Spirit's own testimony of the cross. But you know what? The way the Bible works is that this text now makes each of us an eyewitness to Jesus' death. Because God crosses that bridge, not just to inform us, my friends, but to obligate us. You and I are obligated to God now. Because of this inspired text, we cannot say, I did not see the death of Jesus. We cannot say, I did not understand the death of Jesus. Because God has shown us the death of Jesus through his eyes. God has allowed us to understand the death of Jesus through his understanding 
and with his mind and what urgency that then imposes upon every single one of us. Because friends, you know what that means? That means that we have been with him at the foot of his cross this morning. We have seen with our eyes his death. We have heard with our ears his cries. We have seen, we have seen the tearing of the temple court in uh, the temple curtain in two we have felt with our own feet our own bodies the earth shake under our feet and we have seen the saints who have been raised our own worship this morning my friends is an assembly of people who have been raised from the dead So then the question becomes quite simple. What are you doing right now with what you have seen? God has obligated you. You don't opt out of it. You can't opt out of it. Are you seeing, well, I know you have seen the cross that God has shown you this morning. What are you doing with the cross that God has shown you? Will you remain with the gawkers and the mockers? Or will you move? You see this text? There's a hopeful note in this text. There are two hopeful notes, actually, when we think about the Gospel of Luke, because we know from Luke's Gospel that one of those two robbers, with his last breath, repented. And and what he asked Jesus was so small. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, would you remember me? Just remember me? Do you remember how Jesus answers? Truly, I say to you today, I'll do more than remember you. I'm going to do more than remember you because today you will be with me in paradise. So there's a possibility of change here. See, being made an eyewitness of the cross, of the death of Jesus, in God's great grace, can revolutionize a life and rescue a life, and I pray that that will be so for you. But notice also who gets changed. It's the least religious people who get changed. Do you notice that? It's none of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. It's the, one of the robbers, and it's the centurion and his crucifixion detail in verse 54. See, they saw the same things that we saw this morning. They, they heard the same things that we have heard this morning, and it changed them. What's it doing to you? Oh, friends, by the Holy Spirit's testimony this morning, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, has been crucified before your eyes and before mine this morning. So that on the last day, if any of us do not repent and turn to Christ before we die, if we are to stand before God in our impenitence on the last day and say to him, why are you forsaking me? His answer will be clear. If you never hear the gospel again in your entire life, this is what God's answer will be. Because you forsook my son. You forsook my son. Friends, I plead with you to seek him now. Don't forsake him. 
Seek him now with all your might so that you will not be forsaken by him. Then, Let's pray. Help us to be sober and reverent and obedient. Give us grace to follow you as you lead us according to your truth. I pray in Jesus' name.